Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Welcome to Generally Speaking, a podcast where in each episode, we examine specific types of crimes through the lens of our special prosecution units in the district attorney's office. In this particular episode, we will be discussing drug prosecutions. And as always, to begin, I'd like to give you a little statistical background on what the drug scene looks like in Knoxville at the time of this podcast. Currently in the state of Tennessee, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation gives us the statistic of 80% of crimes have some drug-related nexus. That statistic would be true in Knoxville as well. For more than a decade, our community has been overwhelmed by overdose deaths. We experienced a sharp increase in the number of overdose deaths since the data began being tracked in 2010. We saw our first decrease in 2019 after years of local partnership involvement with various intervention and prevention programs. However, during COVID-19, we have seen another rise in our overdose deaths here locally. Fentanyl continues to be the top drug found in our drug-related deaths, followed by opioids, methamphetamine, heroin, and cocaine. Our felony drug unit was assigned approximately 659 cases in 2020. This unit prosecutes drug traffickers, drug trafficking organizations, and drug distribution cases involving overdose death victims. On today's podcast, we have the team leader of our drug prosecution unit, Sean McDermott. Welcome, General McDermott. Thanks for having me on. General McDermott has been in our office since 2009. As the team leader for the drug unit, he oversees three other prosecutors and three victim witness coordinators and secretaries who do the work of the felony drug unit each day. As the team leader, General McDermott, deals not only with drug prosecutions, but also overdose death homicides and nuisance cases. And in addition to all of that, General McDermott is also our office's public information officer. Let's begin our direct examination. As I mentioned in the opening statements, the TBI reports that 80% of crimes in Tennessee have some drug-related nexus. What types of crimes are included in this percentage? I think when you hear the number 80%, That seems like a huge number to a lot of people. But when you look closer at it and you break down the different categories that drugs touch as far as criminal cases, it starts to make sense. In that 80%, obviously, we have drug distribution cases, like trafficking of drugs, selling of drugs. But we also have drug possession-type offenses. In addition to those, we also have crimes committed while people are under the influence of drugs. Think things like DUIs, public intoxication. DUI is commonly thought of as drunk driving, but increasingly we see more cases of drugged driving or driving where there's a combination of both alcohol and drugs in someone's system. 
There's also a number of cases that we get where assaults or vandalism or other types of offenses are committed while the offender is under the influence of drugs. There's also a whole set of crimes that are committed by individuals who are trying to get money to obtain drugs. So these are a lot of property offenses where people are breaking into homes and stealing things or shoplifting in order to trade those items for drugs or sell those items to get money to get drugs and support their own habit. We also see violent crimes committed around the drug trade. There are robberies where individuals try to steal drugs from what is their competition, rival drug dealers. Uh, there's drug debts that cause uh, violent retribution. Uh, there's also robberies or murders that occur uh, during drug deals that go wrong. So we see all sorts of different offenses that are committed are in and around the drug trade. And so when you look at it from that view, that 80% number starts to make sense. And obviously here in our office, the drug unit doesn't handle 80% of all the crimes in our community. Start by telling our listeners exactly what types of crimes are assigned to the felony drug unit in our office. So of that 80%, those different types of categories, the felony drug unit focuses on drug trafficking, so drug distribution. And in the state of Tennessee, that breaks down into different categories. So we have manufacturing drugs. That would be where the drugs are made here in Tennessee. We used to have a lot of meth lab seizures where people were manufacturing or making methamphetamine here in Tennessee. We also have a lot of cases that deal with the sale and delivery of drugs. So think a hand-to-hand -hand transaction, an individual to another individual, a buyer-seller relationship. But the lion's share of what we get are cases involving the possession with intent to sell or deliver drugs. And when we look at those cases, individuals are caught in a variety of manners in possession of drugs. We then have to prove that they possess those drugs in order to sell them as opposed to use them themselves. So when we look at those types of cases, a lot of the issues that we have are, can we prove they possess those drugs with the intent to sell them? And what we look for and what we train officers to look for is indicia of resale. What can you point to to show that that individual possessed those drugs to sell them. Now, a lot of times we can use the weight of the drugs because the drug trade is a volume business. The more drugs you have, the more you can sell, the more profit you can make. If they have items that are commonly used to further that drug trade, like scales or razor blades to cut up their product, baggies in order to package and then resell their product. Those are all things that we look for to show that an individual possessed those drugs with the intent to sell them not catching them in the act of the hand-to-hand -hand transaction, but catching them holding the drugs with the intent to later sell those. So there are lots of different ways um, that we can charge drug crimes. So tell us what are the ways that a drug investigation itself begins or the prosecution in a drug case begins? So a lot of our cases begin in general sessions court. And that's kind of the initial stage of a three-tiered process for in state court. We get a lot of cases that originate from traffic stops. So a patrol officer working either for uh, the Knoxville Police Department, the Knox County Sheriff's Office, Highway Patrol, they conduct a traffic stop based on some traffic violation, whether it's speeding or a tag light or headlight being out or window tint violation, something like that. And then that investigation leads to the next step. Maybe the, there's an odor of marijuana coming out of the vehicle. When there's an odor of marijuana coming out of the vehicle, they might call for a canine to come to the scene. The canine alerts to the odor of drugs in the car, and a subsequent search reveals an amount of drugs consistent with resale in the car. So traffic stops generate a lot of business for us in the felony drug unit. There's also 
uh, drug complaints where citizens call into the police department or the sheriff's office and say, there's a lot of funny activity going on at my neighbor's house. There's cars in and out of there all hours of the day. They're only staying there for maybe two minutes at a time. That's indicative of people selling out of that residence. And so law enforcement has different techniques that they use to try to investigate what's going on at that residence. And so that might turn into uh, a search warrant where they ask permission from a judge to go and search that residence to see if there's um, narcotics or controlled substances being sold from within there. So we would get those sorts of cases um, at the general sessions level. I had a case early in my career where it was a traffic stop. It's just a run-of-the-mill traffic stop. There were two KPD officers patrolling Minnesota Avenue uh, here in Knox County, and they saw a vehicle driving, and the window of that vehicle was completely blacked out. They couldn't see through the windshield at all. And so that's obviously a violation of the window tint law. The vehicle pulled into a driveway. Officers pulled in, and the individual, the driver, is a sole occupant. He was getting out of the car. He took off his jacket, set it in the car, locked the door. Officers walked up to him and said, hey, we're stopping you because of the window tint. You can't have the window tint that dark. He says, oh, I'm sorry. They asked for license and registration. They could smell marijuana coming off him and, and in the car. And they asked him, hey, do you have anything illegal in the car? He said, no. They said, well, do you mind if we search? He said, yeah, go ahead. He unlocked a car and offered to open the trunk. Well, officers are searching the car. And in the pocket of the jacket that he took off, took off was 36 grams of crack cocaine. And so crack cocaine, like I said, the, the drug trade is a volume business. Individual rocks of cocaine are sold at about 0.2 grams. And so those 36 grams was really about 180 hits of cocaine. And he didn't have any way to ingest crack cocaine. He didn't have a crack pipe or anything like that. So in combination with everything else, we were able to prove that he possessed those drugs with the intent to sell them. And that was just a run-of-the-mill traffic stop. The officer didn't know when they were doing this window tent stop that they were going to stumble upon over an ounce of crack cocaine. So we get a lot of cases through traffic stops, search warrants, and things like that. The other way that we get drug investigations are through longer-term investigations, usually conducted by the organized crime unit. Those investigators can take more time to piece together what they're seeing. Maybe they're getting drug complaints. Maybe they're able to develop an informant who can wear a wire and make controlled purchases from inside a residence. And they can develop that information and apply for search warrants. Maybe they can take that and then try to identify who's supplying the individual selling out of that particular house, work their way up the chain. We were able to do that in a, a case not too long ago involving a, a group of vice lords. They were the mafia insane vice lords. Through an investigation, we were able to piece together who all of the players were, how their distribution organization worked, and we were able to take that case and present that directly to the grand jury. And in one fell swoop, we were able to take that entire drug trafficking organization off the streets and charge them together and prosecute them together in order to try to get not just one dealer at a time, but that whole section of dealers off the streets. Obviously, it takes much more time and effort to do an organized crime type of charge than it does the traffic stop type of charge. Uh, could you talk about the difference in the numbers of the cases you have? How many more cases do you have that evolve out of traffic stops as compared to the detailed organized crime investigative type case? The lion's share of the cases that we get come from that, that those traffic stops um, where officers on the street gather information, they make a stop, they make an arrest. 
Now, that can also be used to help identify other individuals further up the chain. Like I said, we're trying to work our way up the chain so that we can take the higher dealers off the street. So all of those traffic stops, all of those search warrants that patrol officers are doing, that can be added together. And the investigators in the organized crime unit can then piece those individual items together and figure out how they interplay with each other and then develop leads and information, maybe through cell phones or uh, surveillance, things like that, where they can say, oh, this traffic stop had these two individuals in the car. Those same two individuals were found at this residence. They're tied together. Who else has been in and out of that residence? And start building cases that way. So we get a huge volume of cases in Sessions Court through patrol stops and traffic investigations, things like that. But those lead to larger scale investigations. When you talk about these investigations, tell us how the prosecution and investigation of drug crimes has evolved or changed since you have been involved in drug prosecutions. Since I've been doing this uh, since about 2009, there's, there's been two significant changes. We've seen changes in the types of drugs that we're seeing, but also we've seen changes in how technology has affected the drug trade. The types of drugs that we see have changed over the last decade or so. When I first started, you know, I mentioned that case with the window tint. It was a crack cocaine case. We used to see a lot of cocaine cases, marijuana cases, and we would see methamphetamine labs. And that was because people were using pseudoephedrine to try to turn that into methamphetamine. And that's why when you have to go to the store, to the pharmacy to get pseudoephedrine or pseudofed, You've got to give a thumbprint and 15 forms of identification before you can get pseudo. We don't have that anymore because super labs in Mexico are able to create methamphetamine that's both higher quality and cheaper. So because they've essentially undercut the methamphetamine market, meth lab seizures have drastically reduced. Another huge change has been surrounding opioids. When I first started prosecuting drug cases, we didn't have a whole lot of pill cases, and we didn't have any heroin cases. We started to see a change in the early 2010s when we would get traffic stops and search warrants, and we'd see pill bottles and pill bottles and pill bottles with labels from pharmacies in Florida. And what would happen was a sponsor in Knox County would put four or five individuals in a car. They'd pay for the gas They'd pay for the medical visits, but they would send those four or five individuals down I-75 to Florida. In Florida, each of those five individuals would hit multiple pain clinics, multiple pharmacies, getting multiple prescriptions for largely oxycodone. They would then bring that car full of pills back to Knox County. The sponsor would give each of those individuals the pills that they needed to last them a month until the next trip. And then the sponsor would get the rest of those drugs that they could sell. Now, at the height of the opioid pill problem, pills were going for about a dollar a milligram. So a 30 milligram oxycodone pill would be $30 on the street. An 80 milligram oxycodone pill would go for $80 on the street. It's a very expensive habit. And so people who were suffering from addiction to those drugs needed to come up with a lot of money in order to support their habit. At that same time, we saw a huge influx and increase in property offenses. A lot of aggravated burglaries, homes getting broken into, shoplifting cases on the increase. 
people were stealing in order to support this very expensive habit. Around that same time, Florida started cracking down on the pain clinics down there. And so the operators of those clinics looked at where their customers were coming from. And they saw a lot of those people were coming from East Tennessee. So they started to open up shops here in East Tennessee. So instead of having to drive down I-75 to Florida to get the pills, they could stay in town and get those same pills. So we started to try to crack down on doctor shopping cases, um, pain clinics here locally. Also at that same time, we started seeing heroin that we hadn't seen before. I had a special agent with the FBI come to me and he had a stack of cases and he said, I had a CI that we developed and we were able to buy out of this location. And we sent it to the lab and it came back, it's heroin. And so we started looking at that. And what happened was individuals in source cities like Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, they could buy heroin on the street there, bring it down 75 to Knoxville and sell it for four to five times as much money on the streets of Knoxville. So they were making a huge amount of profit. What that allowed them to do though, is lower the price on what they were selling their heroin for. Heroin is sold in what's called a point. It's a 10th of a gram, so 0.1 grams. So it's a very small amount. And they were able to sell points of heroin for maybe $15. I've seen it as low as $10 a point. So think about $10 a point versus $30 for that one 30 milligram oxycodone pill. Those drugs are both opioids. They affect the brain in a similar way. Many people were having to pay hundreds of dollars a day to support their habit. They had a much cheaper alternative. And so that's when we started to see more and more heroin being sold here in Knox County. One of the problems with that was, though, that a pharmaceutical company has a quality control department. So when they manufacture a 30 milligram oxycodone pill, there's 30 milligrams of oxycodone in it, no more, no less. Your street heroin dealer doesn't have a quality control department. So the end user who's purchasing that and putting that in their vein has no idea how strong that heroin is. And like I said earlier, the drug trade is a volume business. And so along the way from you know, one dealer to the next, they try to increase the volume of their product. And so they cut it with any sort of filling agent in order to increase the volume. The more product you have, the more you can sell, the more money you can make. Well, there comes a point where that dilutes the quality of the drug. And so if you sell weak drugs, your customers are going to go somewhere else. So what started happening was they would add fentanyl into that mix in order to increase the potency of what they were selling. Now, fentanyl's a very strong opioid that's probably 100 times stronger than morphine. But again, they don't have a quality control department, so they don't have any idea how strong the drug is until many cases it's too late. And that's when we started seeing a significant increase in overdose cases. You mentioned that another change was technology. Can you explain how technology has changed the drug trade? So when I started prosecuting these cases, a lot of the drug trade was tied to location. If somebody was looking to purchase cocaine, they knew that if they went to this intersection, this location, somebody would be standing there to sell the drug they wanted. And that's when we would see a lot of turf wars over that territory, because whoever was standing at that location, whoever controlled that territory was the one who was going to make the money. So we saw a lot of violence associated with that. One thing that has changed is nowadays, almost everybody has a cell phone. So the location where you're meeting your dealer isn't as important as it once was. 
you can communicate directly with them and arrange to meet wherever you want. That has made surveillance a little more difficult for law enforcement. It's changed how that operation works, and it's taken away some of the violence that we used to see uh, in the late 90s around where drugs were being sold. I have oftentimes said that the drug trade is currently in Knox County a lot like the pizza delivery business, actually, because of technology and the way that technology is now used. Can you talk a little bit about how technology has now allowed the mobility of the trade and the spread of the trade throughout the county? Yeah, you can meet your dealer anywhere where the two of you agree. So it, there's no longer a geographic limitation or a place that you would go to. You mentioned it's it's like a pizza delivery model. I had a case where an individual was posing as a pizza delivery man, and that was his cover. So if he ever got stopped by police or was seen going to all these different locations, it just looked like he was delivering pizzas. And he would deliver pills using that ruse. But it's something where we've seen people meet all over Knox County. You know, it's not just one section of town, north, south, east, west, you know, it's everywhere. The Target parking lot, Whole Foods parking lot, all over town, we've seen individuals meeting in order to trade these drugs. And law enforcement, because of their experience, they know telltale signs to look for. They they might see one car pull in to a parking lot and then car after car after car pull up to that vehicle and just quick little in and out of the vehicle. That's a telltale sign that they're looking for, that drug trafficking is going on at that location. And I know that uh, in dealing with drug cases here too, we've gotten to the point to where you can actually use this technology to order your drugs and have it delivered to your mailbox, that uh, dealers will drive to your mailbox and put um, drugs in your mailbox. So it's very difficult for law enforcement to be able to enforce the law when it comes to the technology and the innovations that have come uh, on the part of the drug dealers. So that's something that, that law enforcement's having to combat on a daily basis. What are some of the common defenses that you combat on a daily basis uh, when dealing with these cases? We see a variety of defenses, and, and sometimes in the same case, in the same closing argument, we'll see multiple defenses. That's always interesting to watch. But a common defense is, that's not mine. I don't know how that got there. Well, well, sir, we just pulled those drugs out of your pocket, your pants pocket. Those aren't my pants. Sure, you're wearing them. You know, so we get absurd defenses like that sometimes. Um, We also get a lot of defenses saying, okay, well, those, those are my pants. Those are my drugs. But you lawfully couldn't have searched there. The search was bad. The search was invalid. You violated my Fourth Amendment rights. And so we deal a lot with search and seizure law. The traffic stop was bad, so throw out the drugs. Or the search was bad, so throw out the drugs. Or the search warrant was invalid, so judge, please throw out the drugs. So we deal a lot with legal defenses. Because in a drug case, if one of those steps along the way was invalid— then everything that came after that is invalid. And in a drug case, if the drugs go away, the rest of the case goes away. So we see a lot of that. So we get the, that's not mine. Well, okay, it was mine, but the stop was bad. Well, okay, the stop was okay, but I possessed it for personal use, not for resale. And so that goes back to some of those indicia of resale that we we talked about earlier, where we have to be able to show ultimately to the jury that, no, the individual possessed these drugs with the intent to sell them. And so in that example I gave earlier where they had 180 
hits of cocaine, we have to be able to explain to the jury that someone who's suffering from addiction, if they're really using that for personal use, they're not stockpiling drugs. You know, I've talked to addicts who say, I can barely wait to use it. It's burning a hole in my hand. So they're using it in the car right after they've purchased. And that that's where we see a lot of our impaired driving cases where people are passed out behind the wheel because they can't wait to get home even to use the drugs. So we see a lot of, it's not for resale, it's for personal use. Or they might say, okay, it's not mine. Well, okay, it's mine, but the search was bad. Well, okay, the search was valid, but it was for personal use. Well, okay, I was selling, but it was to support my addiction. And so we see a lot of cases where people say, okay, I was selling, but I was only selling because I myself, the defendant, am addicted to the drugs that I was selling. And I was trying to sell to make money to support my own habit. And so we have a lot of defenses where they're trying to justify at various points. Um, and so we've got to be able to overcome all of those defenses. Uh, because I think, as has been mentioned in earlier podcasts, the defense doesn't have to tell us what their defense is going to be. We have to turn over all of our evidence and, and lay out that, but they don't have to tell us how they're going to defend a case. So we have to be able to adjust to that on the fly. Something that you said, um, you talked about personal use versus having drugs for resale. Let's talk about that for a second. As a drug prosecutor, it's important for you to be able to tell the difference between those people who do possess drugs for personal use, who are suffering from addiction, versus those people who are making a living from selling drugs. Those people that are suffering from addiction, those are the people that you kind of separate out and we give a path to perhaps a drug court, Vivitrol program, or some type of treatment. Can you talk to our listeners about that and explain to them how important it is to separate those who are suffering from addiction from those who are actually bringing drugs into our community and some of the things that we actually offer um, as an alternative to jail to those people who are truly suffering from addiction? Sure. Drug prosecution is a great example of how we can be tough on crime and smart on prevention. We can be tough on crime for people who are trying to profit off the addiction of others. If they are trying to make money selling poison to people who are suffering from addiction, they need to go to prison. On the flip side of that, we can be smart on prevention. If somebody is selling drugs or if someone is stealing items in order to support their drug addiction, if we offer them an opportunity to treat that drug addiction, we've eliminated what's causing them to commit criminal acts. And by doing so, we eliminate crime. We reduce recidivism or reoffending. And so we have a lot of programs, not, not just for the drug unit, but across the office where we can put individuals, defendants in programs that treat the underlying cause of what's causing them to commit criminal acts. We have a variety of probation organizations in Knox County, Knox County Probation, State Probation Enhanced, the Day Reporting Center, Community Alternatives to Prison Program. All of those probation agencies have aspects where they can send offenders to treatment. Now, some of that is inpatient, residential treatment, followed by halfway houses. Some of it's out of uh, outpatient treatment, but there's a variety of things that they can work with those offenders in order to address 
those underlying issues and, and keep them from offending in the future. We also were able to uh, benefit from a grant for a Vivitrol program where individuals were given a shot on a monthly basis, and basically it blocked the effects of opioids on those individuals. So if they took opioids, they were no longer able to get high. And so that, in combination with other forms of treatment, has been proven to be very successful to change that addiction mentality and the basis for reoffending, like we've been talking about. We also have a drug court program where individuals are sentenced to drug court. They meet very regularly and they work to hold each other accountable as part of the program. We work with a veterans court. So we've got all these sorts of different opportunities where if a probationer, somebody who's been put on probation, if they take advantage of the opportunities that we put in front of them, we can help them turn their life around. It's kind of a carrot and stick approach. We say, I'm going to give you a shot at probation. I'm going to put you in this program. If you work this program, you can stay out of prison. So there's a threat of prison kind of holding over their head and being an incentive for them to continue to work the program. And they continue to work with them throughout the length of their probation. One of the greatest things that I can see as a prosecutor is when a case gets added to the docket and it's at the end of a long probation sentence. I hadn't thought about the case in years. And the probation officer comes before the judge and they, they say, judge, I'm glad to report. This defendant has done everything we've asked them to do. They've been sober now for years. They've got a stable job. They've really been able to turn their life around. And I think if we're able to do that, we're smart on prevention, then that's a case where everybody has won. I couldn't agree more that um, any time that we are successful in keeping someone out of the penitentiary and truly turning the life around, that uh, it's a benefit to everybody. I, I went to several of the uh, graduation ceremonies from our Vivitrol program where uh, people who really were in the throes of addiction, who were looking at lengthy prison sentences sometimes, were offered that chance to get the Vivitrol shots and to go through intense counseling with one of our local counseling agencies. And I would go to those graduation ceremonies and these folks would have pictures of their children that they had not seen in years. But because they had gone through this Vivitrol program, not only did they have pictures of their children, they had pictures with their children. They had become employed again. They had reconnected with their family. They had gotten custody back of their children. They had not committed new crimes. Uh, they had stable housing. Just seeing the graduates of our Vivitrol program and what they looked like at the end of successfully completing treatment for addiction versus what they looked like when they first came into the system uh, where they were just not productive in any way, shape, or form was just really rewarding to be able to be part of that program and to be able to run that program. So I'm glad you mentioned the Vivitrol program. That was something that is very successful, has been very successful here in Knox County. One thing that people often talk about when they're talking about drug crimes is that how drug crimes are victimless. There are no victims in drug crimes. Can you talk about why that is truly a false notion? I think people often say it's a victimless crime because there's no victim listed on the warrant. At a standard drug trial, I'm not calling a victim to the stand. The victim is really society. And so everybody suffers 
because of this activity that's going on. And like we mentioned at the beginning, the 80% of crimes that are somehow connected to the drug trade. But unfortunately, we've seen a rise in cases where we can actually name a victim. And I'm talking about overdose cases. We've had a huge increase recently in the number of overdose cases in Knox County. And for, for the issues that I mentioned earlier, you know, the increase in fentanyl. Fentanyl and fentanyl analogs are our number one uh, controlled substance that we find in overdose victims. And so we're unfortunately having more and more cases where we're able to say the drug trade killed this individual. And then we've got to talk to that individual's mother, their father. Um, and so we've got a huge number of cases where, where we had individuals dying because of this drug trade. And when we saw that, we knew that we had to change how we were investigating those cases and increase how we were prosecuting those cases. And so we were able to work with uh, other partners in the federal government, state lo government, local government, in order to create the Drug-Related Death Task Force. And we were able to have prosecutors and investigators assigned to that task force to treat each of those overdose cases as a crime and make sure that they were investigated as such, make sure that they were processed as, as such. And then we're able to prosecute as many of those as we can. What are some hurdles that prosecutors face in your unit? One of the most difficult parts of that process, though, is that we're unable to prosecute many of those overdose cases. Overdose cases are unique in that the individuals that met the victim and the drug dealer took steps to hide that from their loved ones, from law enforcement. And so we have to work backwards to try to figure out what happened, how they did that. And they, again, they took active measures to elude police so that they wouldn't be caught in the first place. So there are many things when we're looking at overdose cases where we know what happened or we think what happened, but we don't have proof to the level that we're required to put in front of a jury. And so sometimes we're able to, to talk to an overdose victim's family and provide them closure saying, this is what happened. However, these are the issues in the case, and this is why we can't go forward. But sometimes we are able to charge those cases. And we've been uh, successful in many of those cases, being able to charge uh, more overdose cases since the creation of the task force than we were in the years combined leading up to the creation. Oftentimes, the drug trade in our community leads to what we call a nuisance injunction. Can you explain how the drug trade leads us to nuisances and what exactly nuisances are? Sure. A nuisance injunction is just one of the tools that we have in our toolbox. A nuisance injunction is really a civil process where we are looking at a piece of property. It's a civil action against the property itself. What we see sometimes is there's a location, whether it's a business or a residence, and we keep getting calls for service. Law enforcement keeps responding to the same location over and over and over. Traditional law enforcement methods have been tried, but they've been unsuccessful for some reason. So what we're looking at is, can we use this nuisance statute to address that problem? And under the law, the nuisance is defined as alcohol violations, drug violations, gambling, prostitution, quarreling, breaches of the peace, things like that. We're not talking about a lawn that hasn't been mowed or trash being in the yard. That's a different sort of nuisance that's handled through code enforcement. What we're looking at is a 
pattern of repeated nuisance activity. And so when we identify a location that might be a good candidate for a nuisance injunction, we start gathering information. We gather the calls for service, how often are law enforcement or EMS personnel responding to this location. We get business records, property records, things like that. We start gathering information. And if we've identified this location as being a good candidate for a nuisance injunction, we put together a petition that outlines all of the factors that we believe this is a location where this, there's this repeated pattern of nuisance activity. Once we have that petition, we take that in front of one of our criminal court judges. We ask the judge for a temporary injunction where we're asking for permission to board up that property, making it so that nobody else can go onto that property. Sometimes we see that when we execute a search warrant or make an arrest, a vacuum is created where somebody else can come into that same location and continue this drug trafficking activity. When we get an injunction and board up the location, we're preventing that future criminal activity, and we're trying to give some peace to the surrounding community, the neighbors around this nuisance location. So we asked the judge for a court order to go physically to the location and board it up. So the next thing that happens is we, a member of the district attorney's office, goes with law enforcement. We go to the scene. Law enforcement secures the scene. They secure it. They make sure nobody's inside. And then the location is physically boarded up or it's padlocked, securing it so that nobody else can come into that location. When we're at the scene, I can't tell you how many times that a neighbor's come up and said, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. This has been a problem for years. I remember one time we were at a scene and a, a mother came up to us. She was a neighbor and she said, you know, I got my little girl a pair of roller skates months ago, but I haven't let her go outside to skate because of the activity that's been going on at this house. Thank you for doing this. When that happens, we're able to take that information as well and go back into the court because after we serve the nuisance injunction, we have to be in court five days later to explain to the judge what's going on, what we found, and put on proof. And then after we've put on proof, we're asking to take action in order to get rid of that criminal activity. So that could go a number of different ways. There's been some instances where we seek a permanent injunction so that the location can never be reopened. In some instances, we can actually seek to forfeit the property, seize it, and then auction it off and turn it into something that benefits the community. In some instances, though, you know, it might be a situation where there's an absentee landlord. They don't really know what's going on at their property, and we return the property to them with the caveat that we're allowed to run a background check on any future tenants before they let them lease the property. And a lot of times that solves the problem. Um, in some instances, we can say, look, if you fix A, B, C, and D, that would alleviate this activity that's going on, and we can address the problem that way. But the whole purpose is to stop whatever nuisance activity is going on at that location. I think that in the past, we've done nuisances on hotels, on businesses, on bars, on homes. Can you tell our listeners what the most frequent type of location is that we close? Well, when we started out, we started looking at businesses, and this was at the beginning of the, the opiate epidemic. And so we started looking at bars and taverns that were really selling more pills than they were selling beers. But as progressed over the years, the number one location that we're looking at are actually residences. As you've stated, we've done 
taverns and bars and hotels and things like that. But lately here, residences have been our primary locations that we're looking at. And, and that's due in part to the activities of the Drug-Related Death Task Force, where we're seeing overdoses occurring at locations and, and often repeat overdoses at the same location. And so that's one of the re reasons why we're looking at residences more so than businesses here lately. When you're at these nuisance locations doing these closures, does the press show up sometimes? Yeah, we often get uh, members of the media bonding to the scene, showing up. The neighbors are calling different uh, media outlets saying, hey, there's something going on at the house next door. And so that's usually how they learn that this is going on. Actually, that kind of led me to uh, some of my responsibilities working with the press the officers that we go to the scene with are often undercover officers. Uh, they're plain clothes. They don't need their faces on camera where somebody watching the news can identify them if they're you know, under surveillance or conducting surveillance uh, later on. So I had to start going and explaining to the media what was going on. And, and that kind of led me down the path where now uh, I'm the public information officer for our office. We describe the purpose of this podcast really is to pull back the perceived curtain that people have when it comes to district attorney's offices. So as PIO, can you explain to the listeners what we mean when we talk about that perceived curtain? Sure. As PIO or public information officer uh, for the office, I deal with the media on a daily basis. And on a daily basis, I tell a reporter that, ethical rules prohibit the district attorney's office from commenting on a pending case or an ongoing investigation. Those ethical rules exist because every citizen has the right to a fair trial in a court of law in front of an impartial jury. I can't go out there and comment on some pending case because it has the potential to taint the investigation. It has the potential to taint prospective jurors, because we know that the jurors are made up of the citizens of Knox County who watch media reports. And so it, say we had, I don't know, a high-profile DUI case. I can't go on camera, none of us can go on camera, and comment on how impaired that individual was. I can't give the breathalyzer results. I can't give the blood test. I can't give them the defendant's statement. I can't give them the body camera evidence. The appropriate place for an individual accused of a crime to be held accountable is in a court of law. It's not in the media. It's not in the court of public opinion. They're held accountable based on properly obtained and properly maintained evidence. Any law professor will tell you that. And so if I turn over something at the inappropriate time, I might not be able to use that later at trial. Or if I make a statement saying, well, the, the defendant in this high-profile DUI case admitted that he had 14 beers, and then a judge later rules that that statement can't come in during the trial, I've made a mistake by saying that to the media that affects the validity of the subsequent trial and prosecution. Our job as prosecutors is to protect and maintain the administration of justice for all citizens accused of crimes. Well, thank you very much, General McDermott, for talking to us today, not only as uh, a prosecutor, but also as our public information officer. Thank you for uh, talking about all the work that you do in the felony drug unit as well. 
Community response is an important part in my office's ability to maintain public safety. Let's shift now to our closing statements where we will outline how we as a community can help. In a lot of ways, law enforcement has started to address not only the supply of drugs available in our community, but also the demand. Addiction does not discriminate, and there are dangerous criminals who will stop at nothing to prey on these vulnerable people, including our children. If you or a loved one needs help, please visit allfornox.org to find community resources for intervention, treatment, and support. Thank you for listening to Generally Speaking, a podcast presented by the Knox County District Attorney's Office. You can find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website, knoxcounty.org DAG. Be sure to tune in next time for an important conversation about child abuse with General Nate Ogle. If you want to learn more, we've included links to sidebar conversations in the show notes. Don't miss out on more behind-the-scenes content.